KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon, hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Tuesday, May 25th. San Diego police reform one year after the death of George Floyd. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. Governor Gavin Newsom proposed a record-breaking $2 billion investment in wildfire defense and preparation on Monday. Then looking medium and long-term at addressing the deficit in terms of our efforts on forest health, forest management, fuels management, as well as fire breaks all up and down the state of California. The plan also includes hiring nearly 1,400 new firefighters. San Diego County Supervisor Jim Desmond has unveiled a proposal for customers to get a 50% discount at local restaurants. It's called the Dine In and Help Out Restaurant Program. The program would have the county reimburse restaurants for the discounts all in order to stimulate the local industry. Here's Desmond. Restaurants sign up, they send the receipts, they get they get uh, their money, uh, you know, they get their money back uh, through through these uh, through the efforts of the county. When the money's gone, it's gone. The program will be offered on Mondays, Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And the only caveat is that alcohol will not be a refundable purchase. San Diego Supervisor Nathan Fletcher and Mayor Todd Gloria announced funding for 21 transitional housing units and four vehicles for crisis care teams for the county. The units and vehicles were funded using five million of the 25 million dollar county city behavioral health impact fund from kpbs you're listening to san diego news now stay with me for more of the local news you need kpbs on demand is supported by the university of san diego offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business education healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. One year ago today, George Floyd was murdered by former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. Floyd's death sparked a global movement as people from all races took to the streets to call for greater racial justice and police reform. And San Diego was no exception. KPBS Evening Edition anchor Maya Trabolsi spoke with KPBS race and equity reporter Christina Kim about where San Diego stands on police reforms one year later. This summer, we saw a lot of calls for police reform, but what actually happened this past year? So right away in early June, the San Diego Police Department and Sheriff Department banned the use of carotid restraints, which is when police use pressure on both sides of a person's neck to subdue them. Later that month, the San Diego Police Department also changed their policy, making de-escalation a requirement and setting out more explicit measures for other officers to intervene if they saw their fellow officers using excessive force. But a lot of advocates for police reform saw these steps as too small. And in early July of last year, the Coalition for Police Accountability and Transparency released a number of reforms that they wanted to see, which included cutting the police budget and the creation of an independent community oversight committee. As we know, that independent oversight is where we saw some actual movement this past year. And Measure B, of course, passed in November and establishes an independent investigatory oversight commission that we talked about. What is the status on that? That's right. It passed with nearly 75% of the vote, but it's May and we still don't have a commission up and running yet. 
It's been a slow process that's been a source of frustration for community members eager for change. I spoke with Andrea St. Julian, who helped craft Measure B. She says she's hopeful, but a little concerned at how long it's taking to set up this commission. She also says it's very important to her to get new people. There are a lot of these holdover commissioners who want to run the commission just in the same way as they ran the old board. They don't want to make change. And they're trying to put in policies and procedures that are going to keep the commission from moving forward. So what St. Julian is alluding to here is that just last week, the transition committee voted on whether or not the new commission should allow police officers to attend close deliberation when commissioners are reviewing cases. The committee ultimately voted to recommend that police should not be part of these closed sessions, but St. Julian thinks that the fact that it was even brought up is concerning. So while we're waiting for this change, is there any police oversight in place? Well, there are no new independent investigations, but we do have an interim commission that's reviewing cases and still providing recommendations. In terms of getting that new commission up and running, meaning conducting independent investigations, the transition team estimates that will be early next year. We heard a lot about defunding the police over the summer. So where do we stand now with the mayor's proposed 2022 budget? The proposed San Diego police budget actually saw an increase in funding, which has really upset a lot of community members who have been calling in during the budget review meetings. Mayor Gloria increased the police budget by around $19 million for a total of nearly $600 million. In comparison, the Commission on Police Practices was allotted around $1.5 million. According to Mayor Gloria, he did cut back on police overtime in this budget, but with pensions and other costs that were negotiated in previous contracts, there's just not a lot of wiggle room. So, Christina, beyond the commission and beyond police budgets, what are you keeping your eye on in terms of criminal justice reform? At the local level, I want to see what happens with Mayor Todd Gloria's proposed police reforms he released in April, and in particular, what happens with efforts to limit pretextual stops, which studies show disproportionately impact Black and Latino people here in San Diego. At the state level, we saw a lot of police reforms peter out last year. But reform-minded Democrats want to push through bills like SB2, which would create a statewide licensing system for police officers. And finally, at the federal level, I think all eyes are on the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which some were hoping would be on the president's desk by the anniversary of Floyd's death, but which is still stuck in the Senate. And of course, we have to see how these reforms that have already been implemented are actually enforced. It's a lot to keep following in the next year. That's Christina Kim, KPBS Race and Equity reporter. Thank you so much. Thank you, Maya. School officials across San Diego County say kids will be going back to a pre-pandemic normal in the fall. But they say students should keep their face masks handy. KPBS education reporter Joe Hong has more. San Diego Unified, the county's largest school district, will welcome back all students to campuses for full-time in-person instruction when the new school year starts in the fall, says school board president Richard Barrera. Parents who are ready to have their uh, students come back, you know, to in-person learning should expect it's going to look, you know, like a like a typical uh, schedule pre-COVID. While class schedules might be back to normal, it's still possible that students will be wearing masks and some physical distancing will remain in place. This is because the state legislature is unlikely to pass a vaccination mandate before the new school year. And the State Department of Health has yet to say how its guidelines could change. Those you know, uh, guidelines around mask wearing, around distancing, uh, around small cohorts, 
uh, all of those, you know, measures that are in place right now, um, we think, you know, may look differently in the fall and, and whatever they look like, either at the beginning or as, you know, we go into the school year, we want to evolve, you know, based on the, the CDPH guidelines. Across the county, large districts like Poway Unified, Chula Vista Elementary and Sweetwater Union High also plan on a full reopening. But these districts in San Diego Unified will still offer virtual instruction for families who prefer it. Barrera says the district will expand its online independent learning programs that existed before the pandemic. If you look at, for instance, Mount Everest Academy, the full range of courses, you know, are available to students, uh, A to G courses, AP, um, you know, all, all of the uh, uh, courses that uh, students would have access to in person. Um, we want to, you know, as much as possible, replicate that on online as well. The district doesn't know what percentage of students will return to campuses in the fall, but Barrera says he expects class sizes to be back at pre-pandemic levels. And that was KPBS education reporter Joe Hong. The Yellow Whistle Campaign, a nationwide effort to stand in solidarity with the Asian American and Pacific Islander community, has made its way to Mira Mesa, where hundreds of yellow whistles will be distributed. KPBS's Alexandra Ronhell has more. Get your hands on a whistle and support this cause. Councilman Chris Cade is continuing his efforts to fight against Asian hate by helping launch the Yellow Whistle Campaign in Mira Mesa, a community where one in every three residents is Asian. When someone blows the whistle, it means someone is being attacked. It is a call for help. The Yellow Whistle campaign began in New York City to boost security and solidarity for Asian Americans. Kate is hoping to do the same across the county. These yellow whistles will be another tool in our toolbox. A recent study from Stop AAPI Hate reported a sharp rise in Asian hate crimes nationwide, with over 6,000 incidents reported in a year. Do not be silent. Lily Chang, chair of the Asian Pacific Islander American Public Affairs of San Diego, is hoping the yellow whistle will help Asians feel protected and seen. Asian Americans typically are very quiet, very silent, almost invisible. From the Yellow Emperor to the Yellow River, as a Chinese American, Chang says the color yellow carries a rich history and she wears it with pride. But yellow is also a symbol of great peril for the Asian community. Yellow has been used and has been weaponized as a way to, to get rid of the yellow people. The yellow people are dirty, the yellow people are not good enough, the yellow people bring diseases and they're not the kind of people we want. Chang is hoping to give the color a new meaning. We would like to turn this yellow color around and call this not yellow peril, but yellow pride. And that reporting from KPBS's Alexander Von Hell. The first known COVID-19 wrongful death claim involving Donovan State Prison has been filed against the State Corrections Department. iNewsource investigative reporter Jill Castellano has more. Leon Martinez was an inmate at Donovan Prison in San Diego when he died from COVID-19 in January. He was 48. When his wife got the news, she was in shock. I honestly felt like I was going to pass out. I, you know, I fell to my knees, you know, felt very, you know, just very alone. Evangelina Garcia says it's a death that could have been prevented. 
Now, Sheehan Martinez's three children are bringing a case against the state for its role in his death. They say guards were not wearing masks or social distancing, and the prison was housing infected inmates with people who did not have the virus, causing Martinez to contract COVID-19. I feel they gave him a life sentence that he was not supposed to have. The state has about six months to review the family's administrative claim. If it's rejected, they can file a lawsuit. I don't want this to happen to anybody ever again, and I, I still need answers and accountability. The state corrections department would not answer questions about Martinez's death, but has defended its handling of the pandemic. That was iNews Source investigative reporter Jill Castellano. This story was co-reported with iNews Source's Mary Plummer. iNews Source is an independently funded nonprofit partner of KPBS. For long-standing businesses, the COVID-19 pandemic has been brutal. But for restaurants that were just starting out, surviving was nearly impossible. On this week's City Heights Bites, KPBS's Max Rivlin-Nadler looks at one restaurant that is not only trying to survive, but thrive as it shakes off losses from the past year. Dipping sauce. Ingenuity can not only help a business survive the worst climate for restaurants in recent history. Some of the fried bean curves. It can also be delicious when it's in the hands of Trang Nong and her co-conspirators at Tan Don Jai, a Vietnamese restaurant that serves only vegan and vegetarian fare. As you can see around here, the Vietnamese traditional one, it usually comes with the meat, the, the pork. Like They don't provide much of the option for the vegetarian and vegan option. The restaurant opened right before the pandemic, quickly amassing regulars. Yeah, who then switched over to pickup and delivery once indoor dining had to shut down. That gave the owner and workers at the restaurant more time to perfect recipes, not trying to just replicate standard Vietnamese dishes, but create their own versions, hinging on creative uses of soy, tofu, and other vegetable substitutes. Take this banh mi, for instance. They not only make their own bread every day, they make their own quote-unquote meat. For the sanguine, it's really popular because we combine two of the, the protein in here. One of the barbecue pork, the other one we call is real beef pork. Like the slide one you can see right here. And then the other one is a barbecue one. Nong, who immigrated from Vietnam a decade ago, says that people looking for Vietnamese food without meat didn't have any options in San Diego. Now, they have one of the most cutting-edge culinary experiences in City Heights giving even those who grew up eating traditional Vietnamese food a pleasant surprise. At first, they really shocked because like, it tastes exactly like the meat one, you know, the flavor of the broth. Customers are free to choose a variety of sides and meat substitutes to supplement dishes they can make at home. A lot of people, they, they don't have enough time to like, wait for a little bit to make the food, so they just on the, on the rush and then just wrap some of the item and then just go home and then heat it up. While business is still way down from before the pandemic, Nong hopes that as indoor dining resumes this week in the restaurant, there will be way more regulars looking for food that pushes boundaries while still feeling very much at home in the dynamic food scene of City Heights. And that was KPBS's Max Rivlin-Nadler. Coming up, an open letter from a city council member highlights concerns at San Diego Unified's Lincoln High School. We'll have that story and more next, just after the break. 
Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Concern is mounting over a host of issues at San Diego Unified's Lincoln High School after a city council member submitted a letter highlighting long-standing concerns within the school's administration. Council member Monica Montgomery Stepp says high administrative turnover coupled with allegations of misspent funds and sexual assault at the school constitutes a failure in Lincoln High's service to its community. Kristen Takeda is the education reporter at the San Diego Union Tribune. She discussed the letter and its surrounding controversy with KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hindman. So what particular incident prompted Councilmember Montgomery Stepp's letter and what did the letter express? Yeah, so it looks like there were a number of things that prompted the letter. One of them was one of Lincoln's directors or leaders was apparently moved from the school. And so I think that for the council member brought up the concerns again of the school's leadership turnover. They've gone through, I believe, four principals since 2014. So I think that kind of just prompted those concerns again. Can you remind us of what these longstanding issues are at Lincoln High School? Yeah, so I think one of the big ones was the leadership turnover in terms of going through several principals in a relatively small number of years. And so I think just having to cycle through so many leaders in that time really dampened the morale of the community and it's made them feel like their school isn't getting, you know, the best leadership or the best help from the district. And so that's why that has been, I guess, a source of discouragement to some. But they did want to note that like there have been some improvements at the school since the new principal has been appointed. And so and Stephanie Brown was appointed by a, a committee of, pe- of community members and people who selected her for Lincoln. So since she came, the graduation rates have gone up from, I believe, 80 to 84 percent in the year she's been here. And then the suspension rate also fell significantly. How has San Diego Unified's leadership reacted to the letter that was written by Councilmember Montgomery Stepp? In general, and specifically the board vice president, um, Sharon Whitehurst-Payne, whose area does include Lincoln, she believed that the letter ignored the progress that um, the, the new principal has made in the past two years. And... I think in general, she wanted to stress that that there has been progress and I guess she felt it wasn't fair to only highlight negative events or elements about Lincoln and not focus on the positives. And tell me about some of those positives. The graduation rate has gone up, the suspension rate has gone down, and um, the principal has, according to the school, the principal has been 
working on, for example, changing the career pathways that the school offers for students. And so, um, and then I think in general, there's also just a lot of community members, whether it's at the YMCA or other organizations that are in the community that are trying to celebrate and support the students at Lincoln and in the surrounding community. But for years, community advocates have argued the school has failed to address issues with leadership, resources, and equity for students, especially Black students. What can you tell us about that? Part of that is what we've seen about, yeah, the leadership turnover. That just signals to some community members that the district hasn't stabilized the school after a number of years. And they've also been pointing to gaps in racial disparities and discipline So like in the district overall, there is a racial disparity gap between um, Black students who are suspended and students in general who are suspended. Black students um, are more likely to be suspended from school. And so, um, yeah, those are just some of the signs that some community members, they see, and then that that to them is proof that, that Lincoln is still not where they want it to be, or they don't think the district is doing enough to help the school. What's been the district's response to the multiple alleged sexual assaults and allegations of misused funds mentioned in Montgomery Steps letter? Well, for the um, regarding the funds, um, the district said that um, the two, the the money that the school had want the school council had wanted to spend on tutoring and textbooks it was about two hundred twenty thousand um, dollars. That that money they they said that money was actually never available in the first place for the school council to decide to spend. And so that's why, I guess that was their explanation for why the money didn't go to tutoring and textbooks. This is from 2019. And so the district said that an outside law firm conducted a report um, looking into the matter to see why that money wasn't um, allocated to tutoring and textbooks. And that's what that um, law firm had found that the money wasn't available in the first place. Um, And in terms of the sexual assaults, these are from a number of uh, lawsuits and other cases that had come up in the past several years. Um, And each one, I, I don't have in front of me like the district response for each of those. Ultimately, what type of change do Councilmember Montgomery Stepp and community advocates want to see happen in the immediate future for Lincoln High? I think one of the things is they just, for the Councilmember's letter, she was mainly asking for answers to a lot of questions about why these things have been happening at Lincoln, why, what, what is the state of Lincoln in terms of the data. And so, um, yeah, I think they, a lot of it, um, is they want answers and then also community members um, they some of them feel just ignored by the district and so I think um, this out or they say that they just want to hear um, or for the um, for the district to listen to them and so I um, yeah I think that's what one of the main things they were they were hoping for That was Kristen Takeda, education reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune. She was speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hindman. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando is an avid Star Wars fan who enjoys celebrating May 4th. That is, may the 4th be with you. 
And on May 25, 1977, Star Wars opened in theaters and changed the movie landscape forever. Beth spoke to some fans who saw the opening day in San Diego as well as in foreign countries, and she brings us this audio postcard. I remember the Fox fanfare. And when you're sitting in a single screen house with anywhere from 800 to 1,000 people, with this massive wall-to-wall screen, it's it's pretty heady stuff. And then the blue that said, you know, a long time ago in the galaxy far, far away, and the screen went black, and then BAM! And then when the first ship comes on screen, and the, the theater is like doing its rumble rumble, and you're like, whoa. What blew you away right from the beginning was the Star Destroyer. Because sci-fi at that time hadn't really done a great deal of showing scale in space. Yeah, it was just sitting there slack-jawed, and, and the, the sound, of course. You know, we'd never experienced that kind of sound before. The Rebel cruiser went by, and the Imperial cruiser went by overhead. And then all of a sudden, you see that Star Destroyer, and it's coming and coming. And all of a sudden, there's this break, and you're like, oh, it's finally over. No, that's just the docking bay. Oh my god, is this thing ever going to end? It's so big. And I sat there, that whole movie just lean forward in that seat, just staring at that drive-in screen, just listening to that little tiny crappy speaker. <laughs> Hi there, my name's Trevor Newton. I saw Star Wars in June of 1977. I was nine years old. Hi, I'm Colleen Kelly Burks, and I was 21 years old when I saw Star Wars at the Valley Circle on the day before it premiered on the 25th, so I saw it on the 24th. I was totally blown away. Uh, so my name is Gary Dexter. I uh, grew up in the United Kingdom. I was nine years old when um, what we now know as episode four, A New Hope, dropped. Uh, what was interesting about the UK is at that time we got all of our big movies at least six months later than uh, the US. And so we had an additional six months plus of hype and marketing. And so by the time the movie actually came out and I got to see it, I was on the, the verge of exploding. But it did change my life. Hi, I'm Yazdi Patavala, and um, I was about nine years old when I first, first watched Star Wars. It was at the Sterling Cinema in Mumbai, in India. I got a bad feeling about this. There were parts of it which were pretty scary to me. Like, to this day, I remember there's that one scene where Luke, Leia, Han, and I think Chewie, they're all in this trash compactor. One thing's for sure, we're all gonna be a lot thinner. Oh my God, the walls are literally closing in on them. And, I, you know, I remember, like being physically scared of it. It was like the worst thing imaginable to me. Listen to them, they're dying, Artie. I'm Mark Tuttle. I was 12 years old when Star Wars came out in, in 1977. And I think that was the, the perfect age to see Star Wars. Even though we're dealing with lightsabers and blasters and aliens and other worlds, it looked real. And it made you think it was real because it's like, a ship is filthy. Look at the X-Wings. I mean, I mean, would you really want to fly in that? Hi, my name is David Glanzer, and I saw Star Wars for the first time uh, the weekend that it opened at the Valley Circle Theater in San Diego. Hi, I'm Karen Schnabelt, and I was 22 years old when Star Wars came out. I saw it 35 times that summer. I'm Kevin Ring. I was 13 years old when I saw Star Wars for the first time at the Valley Circle Theater. People knew how to react instinctively. When Darth Vader appeared 
out of the steam and smoke from the blasting open that, that door. You figured he was bad and everybody was booing and hissing. Boo! You know, and, the, and, the, and that was just like, whoa, I'm not the only one that wants to make noise at this. Yeah, Many years later and I can still be all enthusiastic about it because I still remember how cool that was. That was an audio postcard produced by KPBS arts reporter and Star Wars fan, Beth Accomando. And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.